This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, Olga, how are you? Hey, how are you? Olga called me again just two weeks after she said she'd try getting in touch with Natasha. I was feeling a little anxious when she said she wanted to talk to me, but also... Excited. <laughs> That's the good thing, because I do have some great news, actually. <laughs> um, Natalia uh, got in touch with me. Only then I realised that Natasha is actually the anglicised version of the Russian name Natalia which is why you'll hear Olga calling her that in all our conversations. I also realized that I say wow a lot when I'm excited. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. So, um, wow. yeah. So she wrote me an email and uh, it says that she still remembers your mom and that she would be happy to connect with her. Wow, that's so exciting. That's. 50 years of um, not knowing for my mum is, is over, I guess. I was excited, but I also started feeling nervous about what my mum's reaction to the news would be. It could be overwhelming for her. What if she wasn't ready to confront her story? But at this point, I'd gotten too far not to tell her. Anyway, Olga managed to find Natasha on Facebook and she wrote to her. But she didn't respond to my message. Next, she got in touch with the Vaganova the ballet academy where Natasha teaches. So I wrote them an email. Explaining that someone she's working with in London is trying to find Natasha. First, she expected to hear back from the school. And then there is just an email coming from Natalia. Natasha said, yes, of course she remembers Debbie Gale, that they were friends back then and that she would be happy to talk to her again. In a very short space of time, we've gone from Oh, I wonder what happened to this woman, to finding her Facebook, to her actually, you know, getting in touch and emailing you to saying she remembers my mom and she, you know, she's up for talking. And you've done in about two weeks what we couldn't do in 50 years, Olga. So you're much smarter than us. Oh, don't say this. I don't know how to react to this kind of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, I won't. Okay, you get back in touch with her. I'll tell my mum in the first stage that, you know, we found her and, and then we can figure out well, how the hell we're going to do this. <laughs> sure. From Message Heard, I'm Jake Warren and this is Finding Natasha, which I guess we just did. So back in 1974, my mum was still in Leningrad. At that point, Natasha wasn't an echo of the past yet. She was a new friend who made life a little easier for her. The two of them, along with Natasha's friend Genia, used to spend a lot of time together. They'd drink coffee together, talk about how they all fancied Mikhail Baryshnikov, 
There were two girls who were just warm and friendly to me. So you were a part of something. I felt part of something. But like back home, her life still mostly revolved around ballet. Her main focus was becoming a world-famous ballerina. She was dancing with the Soviet Union's best young dancers, and she was meant to be one of Britain's best. She believed it too, until little by little, she started realizing that it wasn't going to be that easy. I was struggling. I biggest shock was I went into this classroom and the floor was raked. That was a big shock. The floors in Russia, unlike in the West, they're raked, which means they're slanted. Basically, the floor was sloped, meaning it was slightly higher up at the back of the stage than it was at the front. So your whole balance, you have to readjust your whole balance. That completely threw me. I don't think I could even stand up very well to start with. If you're trained on it from a child, obviously it's completely normal and the, the stages of all the Russian theatres were raked. So the dancers were used to it. They grew up with it. They can then adapt to a flat floor easier. But if it's the other way around, it's very difficult, actually. Um, so that was the first shock. The second shock was the realisation that I, although had some talent and aptitude, obviously, I was absolutely out of my league. The dancers were exquisite because, as now, in Russia, it was the ultimate. It's like being a movie star. To get to be a ballet dancer, to be, you know, it's a huge thing in Russia to be in the Kirov or the Borsha. So they had the creme de la creme and they took the absolute best. You know, there was a reason that the Kirov produced these amazing dancers and um, I could not compete. I, at 17, I hadn't had the previous training at that level. And in all brutal honesty, I don't believe I had the ability to have made up for lost time. And, um, and that was a terrible shock. So there was a lot of shocks and a lot of huge reality checks. And although I was 17, I sort of became like a lost seven-year-old in mainly floods of tears from morning to night. I felt like I was drowning because not only was my dream being shattered, I was being forced to take a very stark look in the mirror at my own abilities or lack of them. So even though she had the comfort of Natasha's friendship, things were tough. She'd already had to face rejection once as a dancer after being denied by the Royal Ballet Academy. In her mind, Russia was her last chance to prove herself. But at the Kirov, ballet stopped coming so easily to her. And it wasn't just the sloped stages that turned dancing into an uphill struggle for her. Mum wasn't eating well. The Soviet diet was worlds away from the food she knew from home. And she started to get ill as a result. I very quickly lost a huge amount of weight. I became desperately homesick. And it's, it's the overwhelming shock of, it's really difficult to, to, to describe, but um, nothing prepares you for the grey, the greyness of it. It's desolate. It was, it, was, it was shocking. The best way I can describe it is when I came back, I remember being quite overwhelmed by the colour. Everything was so colourful. Everything was so bright, almost hurt my eyes. But of course, 
you know, the young people I was with, they knew no different. That was the world they were born into. So they were chattering amongst themselves. They were working hard. They, of course, most of them had families or loved ones or support. But there was always that underlying atmosphere of distrust and secrecy and you know I could never be part I could never join in even if I had spoken perfect Russian I would not have been accepted my mum recognized this feeling she'd felt like an outsider before but this time it was more intense despite having Natasha it was magnified by language culture and losing ballet as an escape and very quickly things got even worse more on that after a quick break. I started to get sick after about three months, and I believe it was from drinking water. Um, I remember going into the bathroom, actually. Oh, one of my biggest horrors were the toilets were just in a long line there was no divider no door and I remember I couldn't I just couldn't go <laughs> I found that very difficult that was very strange that was pretty standard Soviet stuff and the basins that's where I drank the water I remember because the water that came out of the basins on the other side of the bathroom was a really suspect colour, brown colour, and I did drink it. Even today, it's not totally safe to drink water from the taps in Russia, and it definitely wasn't safe back then. There is a whole bunch of different diseases you can get from drinking unsanitary water. Cholera, diarrhoea, dysentery, or hepatitis. Which, to be fair to my mum, she had no way of knowing. No one had warned her whether before she left the UK or after she got to the school. So on she went and drank from the tap in the school toilets. That's when it started. I started to get stomach pains and fever, night sweats. And, and I, I didn't tell anybody. I had no one to tell other than Tasha. I think she knew I was starting to get sick. I didn't know what to do. And then I went downhill very quickly and I got incredibly weak. And I remember one morning I literally could not get out of bed. Uh, and bed, that's a laugh. It was a wire thing. But I remember lying on this hard bed thing. And I just remember thinking, I cannot, if my life depends on it, get out of this bed. I was just felt so ill. Mum must have been doing so badly that Natasha told someone at the school. That night, and it was in the night, some men and women came into the room where me and the other four girls were sleeping. And this big sort of Russian babushka lady, she woke me. She said to put on this dressing gown and boots. And I was told to go with them. And she helped me, I remember. And I remember going down the stairs, out through the main doors, just in this dressing gown and boots. And these two guys in uniform, medical uniform. And I was helped into an ambulance. I kept asking where I was going and why this was happening and I, as usual, dissolved into tears. Um, and I was taken to a isolation hospital just outside the city of Leningrad 
And that's when the nightmare really began. Because in those days, Soviet hospitals were pretty terrifying places at the best of times. And they didn't know what was wrong with me. I was very, very sick and uh, had fever and various other symptoms. And they put me in a room and they locked the door and it had a huge window. So I could look through the window and they could look at me. There was one bed, one table and a door that led into a small toilet and basin. And I remember just feeling overwhelmed with relief that I was able to lie down. And they must have given me something to make me sleep because I think I just lost all track of time. But I remember waking up for the first time properly and looking through this big glass window into the corridor and banging on the window because obviously the door was locked. And that was the first time I felt really scared really scared because I thought what what's going to happen and they were only giving me water to drink because I, th- I think they thought it was best to starve it out of me. It's tough hearing this not only because of how terrified she must have felt then but also because of how lonely it must have been to keep this part of the experience to herself in all the years since. It upsets me that she was treated this way or well not treated really. These two sort of large Russian nurses would come in and they were very sort of sweet in the sense of they would stroke my hair and I would cry and plead with them and they would gabble in Russian at me, but they always locked the door behind them and they never gave me anything to eat and I kept making gestures that I was hungry and... But they... I just couldn't get through to them. One question I keep asking myself is, where was the British embassy while all of this was happening? Their complete lack of support was the final ingredient to the perfect storm of nightmares that this cultural exchange had become. That's a very good question. They didn't know that I'd been taken ill. And obviously, they hadn't played a proper part anyway, because there was no embassy in Leningrad. There was only a consulate. And uh, afterwards, when all this came out, there was a bit of a stink because the consulate was actually away skiing for the first, I think, month that I was there. So nobody came to the school or... They obviously had been told that there was a young English girl in the school, but nobody visited me and certainly nobody knew I'd been taken to this hospital. In the hospital, the days and nights became interchangeable for mum. Time became discernible only through the isolation ward's vague patterns. The nice nurses would visit mum's room every now and then, comfort her a little bit, but otherwise she was just locked in there alone for days. I remember becoming fascinated by my hip bones because they protruded more and more. <laughs> there was nothing to read, no, uh, no one, to, it was nothing. I just remember in this room and I remember thinking, I could die here and no one's even going to know. And uh, the nurses would come in three, four times a day. I would cry and they would smile and stroke my hair and make noises to me, but nothing changed. And then one day, I don't know how many days down the line, I was sitting on the bed And then it was like a vision. I saw her, Natasha. I saw her face through the glass. 
thought it was a mirage. And she put her finger to her mouth like that. She went, shh, like her finger to her mouth. She knew what a crybaby I was. And I squealed and jumped up and down and started banging on the window. And I see her sweet face now. She's with her finger like that. Shush, 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 shush. And then I realised, well, this is a problem because the door's locked. But luckily, the door was locked on the outside. And Natasha opened it and she came in. And I have never in my life been more relieved the moment when she came and put her arms around me. And... Uh, she gave me an apple. I've always hated apples since then, but anyway. And uh, she said, don't cry, don't cry. And I, of course, immediately started saying, oh, Natasha, I'm so scared and blah, blah. And she just put a coat around me. My boots were in the room. She put my bare feet into the boots. I put the coat on. She wiped away my tears. She said to me, be quiet. She took my hand, we went through the door. We walked down the corridor, there was no one at nothing. And we got to the end of the corridor and there was a fire door, you know, one of those big bolts. She pushed it and the door opened and we went out. And we were straight out onto a snowy field. Hi. Hi, there we go. We've got it working. Sorry? I said, we've got it working. How's it going? Can you hear me? I haven't, yeah, I haven't got anything working. I don't know what you're talking about. Nothing's no, working. No, I've got it from my end, but you can hear me okay, is what I'm saying. Can you see me? No, no, I can't see you. We're just doing Spirit, it by a phone now. awful. Huh? <laughs> no, don't worry, we're not, we're not doing a video call. We're just doing it to your mobile. Good. But anyway, um, I've got um, I've got some good news. Yeah, um, I could do with some because my life is absolute shit. Mum, shut up! Stop being weird. Um, so I have well, not just me, you know, me and and my team. When lockdown started, you know, we were looking into. I just come out and say it. We've found Natasha. My mum's reaction and the next part of her story are coming up in episode four of Finding Natasha, which is ready for you to listen to right now in this feed. Finding Natasha is a Message Heard production. It's hosted by me, Jake Warren, and produced by Sandra Ferrari and Jake Atayevich. Edited by Jacob Tayevich and exec produced by Sandra Ferrari. And a huge thank you for her help with actually finding Natasha goes to Olga Kuzmenkova. The theme music is by Matt Huxley.